Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Emmett Montgomery. There are a lot of weird things about growing up Mormon, but hypnotism is not one of them. (laughs) That and more, but before that, let me talk for just a little bit here about getting your mailing and shipping done, because... Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. But we know a better way, <laughs> even though I can't speak today, uh, that it's stamped I can't With Stamps.com, you buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your own computer. Uh, you know, from your on on your desk using your computer and printer. <laughs> you can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter. At just a fraction of the cost, you can save at least 50% compared to a postage meter. And you'll avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. We use Stamps.com at risk in the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. We made it! We made it through the Stamps.com ad with all the words pronounced like they're pronounced. Now here's the show.
kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Pink Satellite behind me now. And we are calling today's episode Scarred. Listen, I just had the most remarkable, exhausting, but remarkable trip to Portland and Seattle, where we did four shows. And today's episode is going to feature three stories from those four shows, but there will be many more stories from those shows featured in future episodes. It was amazing and exhausting for a whole host of reasons. For one thing, I never do well with jet lag. Another thing, people brought some heavy stories to these particular shows. One of the shows, uh, a couple had to run out. I mean, leave the theater because they were so triggered emotionally by one of the stories. And I, I always want to encourage people that we, the Risk family, meaning all the rest of the fans and we who make the show, are empathetic and sympathetic about that sort of thing. It's okay if you have to turn the podcast off sometimes or get up and leave the theater because this whole series is loaded with stuff that might trigger you. And so you got to take care of yourself. Another reason the weekend was exhausting for me was because I didn't take care of myself. I ended up uh, off the wagon again with the drinking. I'm back on it. And on it is the best place for me to be. The whole thing started the first night in Portland when a Risk fan offered me a drink that she said was not alcoholic, but it was very s- mysterious little moment, a little bit Twilight zone Anyway, uh, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of my very favorite comedians, Emmett Montgomery. But before that, Todd Kelly did the show for the first time in Portland. A great voice. And he tells a story that has a hell of a lot of heart. Here he is now. At the Risk Live show in Portland, it's Todd Kelly with a story we call The Aquarian. It was shortly after my 45th birthday and I want to say maybe the 12th or 13th time in the space of a goddamn half hour that she asked me for a glass of water that I made the decision to kill my mother. (laughs) And before you judge me too harshly, you need to understand that more than anybody else I've ever known at that moment, the woman deserve to die. In 2007, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and it was an enormous blow to the family and an enormous surprise. For one thing, I come from one of those incredibly tight-knit families, a nuclear family of four. My sister has since moved over to the other coast, but we're still the same family that on major holidays flies and gets together. My parents used to take care of my wife and I's children uh, when they were very young. It's sort of hard to describe exactly how tight-knit my family was, 
But more than that, three years before the diagnosis, my father had fallen to cancer himself. After a particularly long and arduous and painful battle, I wish that I could introduce you to my mom right now. An amazing woman, and the best way that I can think of to describe her would be sort of a woman of silent strength. It's funny because when I think about stories, I think about my father. My father was this brawling, storytelling, hard drinking Irishman. And my sister grew up kind of in the same way, and I followed my sister's footsteps. And we were sort of all of these giant forces of life living in our house, and my mom had no stories. And the reason for that wasn't because she was born. She absolutely wasn't. She was sort of this calm, quiet presence that we all revolved around. I don't know what would have ever happened to my family if my mom had died when we were young. It would have shattered, surely. So hearing that she had cancer was an especially hard blow. What was a little surprising was that she decided to take treatment for the cancer. My father's treatment took so much out of him that for the three years after his death, she kept saying over and over, if I get cancer, that's God's way of telling me my time's done. Not going through that. Not doing it. But when she got the diagnosis, she agreed to a spectacularly aggressive treatment, four months surgery, followed by chemo and radiation for four months straight. And it was exactly like you might imagine it. It was terrible. But at the end of the four months, she was given the word that she was in full remission. And my family rejoiced. It was an amazing moment that we clung to for, I want to say, 90 days before my mom began to get other symptoms. And we took her in. And what we discovered was that the cancer hadn't left her body so much as it had just left her ovaries. It had metastasized into most of her other organs, including, we were told, her brain. And what we were told was that it wasn't really a question of whether she was terminal or she wasn't terminal. The question was, does she have weeks or does she have months? There's no way she has years. The brain cancer began to eat away faster than the rest. And by the time Christmas time rolled around, my mom began to forget things. And at first it was very, very tiny, small things. It would be, she just put her car keys down five minutes ago, had no idea where they were. She had been reading a book all last night, couldn't for the life of her remember the title of it. She wanted to watch her favorite television show, but she couldn't remember what channel it was on. Mundane stuff, but worrying nonetheless. And then shortly after Christmas, one day she woke up and she found out that her arm didn't work. And we took her to the doctor, and the doctor explained that there was actually nothing wrong with the arm. It was the brain. The brain was telling the arm, reach out, grab a glass of water, pick it up, bring it to your mouth. But the messages could no longer get to the arm, and so instead it sort of hung at her arm, cramped and gnarled like some kind of tree branch. 
And it was shortly after that that she fell and broke her hip. And the doctors told us, it's no longer a question of weeks or months. It's a question of weeks or days. And you need to get her into hospice now. And so we took her into a hospice center in Portland, Oregon. And I used to go visit her multiple times every day. And she'd been in hospice for about 10 days when I went to visit her and found her sobbing. And I asked, what's wrong? You know, other than the obvious. And my mom said, did you know that I was married? And I said, yeah, I know you're married. And my mom said, I remember that I was married to this man, and he was amazing. And he was the love of my life. And I remember that I could go a million years and a thousand lifetimes and never meet a better match. But I can't, for the life of me, remember who that was. My mom was a woman of faith, and she honestly believed that God would take her before her memory got so bad that she lost everything that was important to her. But now she was beginning to wonder if that might actually not be the case. And I didn't know what to say because what can you say? I just stood there dumbly looking at her, nodding my head, which is when the nurse came in. And the nurse came in and was shuffling things around and patting the pillows and turning my mom over so that she didn't get bed sores. And she said, Mrs. Kelly, is there anything that I can get you? And my mom said, yes, I would like a glass of water. And the nurse said, Mrs. Kelly, we've been through this over and over. You know you're not allowed to have water. And I said, wait, wait, what? Wait, why can't she have water? I don't understand. It's a little complicated. The hospice center where we had my mom checked in, we made very sure that it had some kind of living will policy because my mom didn't want to be hooked up to a machine. And the living will policy of the center simply said, we will not take any action that will end a life and we will not take any action that will prolong a life. And when you hear it stated like that, it really sounds like there's no middle ground, like there's this razor's edge where everything will fall to one side or the other. But as we learn, that's not actually the case. And in my mom's particular instance, water was one of those things that fell in between the cracks. Her state had gotten to the point where she was so weakened that were she to drink water, the nurse explained to me, she would surely drown and die. It wasn't a question, maybe she would die. She would absolutely die. And instead, to hydrate her, they gave her this gray, viscous material. And I actually tried some of it then, and it pours out slowly. And the best way that I can describe it is if you drink it, it's like having a live slug slowly creep through your body. It is an amazingly unpleasant experience. But more than that, it doesn't quench your thirst like water does. It doesn't have that, oh, that's so refreshing. 
All you really want to do is throw up. <laughs> and my mom kept saying over and over, I don't care if I die. Just please give me a glass of water. And eventually I said, just give her a fucking glass of water. And my mom in this instance to let me know that she was still actually in there said, Todd language. <laughs> and then to the nurse said, but yes, get me a fucking glass of water. And the nurse refused because she had no choice. And the nurse actually stuck around to make sure that I wouldn't give her a glass of water either. And as I said, it was maybe after the 12th or 13th time in the space of 20 or 30 minutes that I made the decision that I was going to come back that night and kill my mother before she lost everything that was important to her. You would think that it would be difficult to sneak into a 24-hour hospice center. But in fact, it was shockingly easy. When I went back at 9 o'clock at night, there was really, there were people on duty, but they were nowhere to be seen. And to a certain extent, this was a little bit troubling to me because already driving over, I was having serious second thoughts because I was very positive that my mom wanted to die. I was very positive that she would be grateful for me killing her. I was very positive that were the situation reversed, she would absolutely do the same for me. But there's the thought of, do I really want to live the rest of my life knowing I killed my mom? And on top of that, there was the very real issue that it was a very real crime to do this. But when I got there, there was nobody to stop me and say, what are you doing? I'm here to kill my mom. Oh, you can't do that. <laughs> I managed to walk all the way back to my mom's room without running into anybody. And I got to her room, and it was dark except for nightlight. And I closed the door, and I reached into my coat, and I pulled out the instrument of her death, which was a plastic sports water bottle with a straw. I'm sure you know the kind that I, I'm talking about. And my thought was, I'm going to wake her softly. I'm going to let her drink all she wants. And if God decides it's not her time, that's on God. Otherwise, I'm letting her get out now before she loses anything else that's important to her. And so I walked to the bed and I held out the water bottle. When I was, I want to say eight or nine years old, I had this pet lizard. And one day the cat got into the lizard cage and mauled it. And it mauled it in that way that cats do, where you play with it until it ceases to become fun and you wander away. And when I found it, it was clearly going to die, but still alive and twitching. And I screamed for my dad, and my dad came. And I'm like, ah! And my dad said, well, you gotta kill it now. And I told my dad, but I love the lizard, which, by the way, was an incredibly huge lie. I hated the lizard. <laughs> All I knew was, I don't want to touch this thing that's so close to death, and I don't want to be killing anything. 
And so I made up this lie and I said, but I love the lizard so much. And my dad said, Todd, because you love it so much, you have to kill it. Mercy isn't just this thing that you give to others that you love and care for because it's easy to do. It's always hard. That's how you know that you love them. You gotta kill it. And I couldn't do it. And so my dad took the lizard and he wrapped it up in a handkerchief. He broke the neck, unwrapped it, handed it back to me. Well, now you gotta bury it. And I'm sitting there holding the water bottle, thinking about this fucking lizard. And I can't tell you how long I was standing there. It might have been five minutes, it might have been 15 minutes, it might have been half an hour. I have no idea. The only thing that I can absolutely say for certain is that I froze. I absolutely froze. And I couldn't or wouldn't go through with it. And the next thing I know, I felt somebody taking the water bottle out of my hand. And it was the nurse. And she said, Mr. Kelly, you know you're not allowed to give your mom water. And it's after visitor hours. I need to escort you out. And so I let myself be escorted out. We got the call from the hospice the next evening. I was actually down in Salem. I wasn't able to visit my mom that day. I had a bunch of corporate presentations that I had to do at a conference. And in the early evening, I got the call. And I got in my car, and I drove back to Portland. And on the way, I called my wife and let her know and told her to call my mom's church. And I called my sister to let her know that mom had passed away. And my sister said, it's just as well. I called her early this morning, and she insisted that she'd never had a daughter. I got to Portland about half an hour later, went straight to the hospice. By the time I got there, my mom's best friend and her priest were there. They'd just given last rites, and they were kneeling and praying by the body. And so I got down, and I kneeled with them. I grabbed my mom's hand, and so cold, so soon. And I gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I had no idea what to say. And finally, my mom's best friend said, you know, I think at the end today, I think it all came back to her. I think she was who she always was when she finally passed away. And the priest said, I think you're right. I think the last few hours, she was at total peace. And I thought about that. Because it was such a bald-faced lie. And I realized that all this time I'd worried that I'd feel guilty if I'd ended her life. But now, now I realized that what had happened in my mom's last few hours most likely was that not only didn't she remember my sister, she probably didn't remember me, she probably didn't remember who she was, she was probably just this woman alone 
and frightened, not knowing who she was, not knowing where she was, not knowing why everything in the world hurt so much, all because I didn't have the strength to do what I knew I should have done for her. But there are these truths, you know, that are so huge and vast that you can't really wrap your mind around them and you can't wrap your heart around them. And so I said the words, knowing that I would say them for the rest of my life until I hopefully believed them, lies though they were. I think you're right, I said. I think she was fully herself at the end. I think those last few hours, she was finally at peace. Thank you. You know what we're going to do? We're going to live like we're telling the best story in the whole world. Are you ready? What's the point of living when life is so unfair and everything? Because you'll have bad times, but that'll always wake you up to the good stuff you weren't paying attention to. I am, um, I, I am a hilarious comedian. Uh, I'm pretty good at it. I, I recommend you check me out. Um, and because I am, uh, I get to do a lot of neat things. And about a year ago, I was given the opportunity to uh, headline a local show, a really amazing uh, show called The Comedy Womb. And as some of you know it, uh, it's definitely worth seeking out. In the email exchange about my availability, uh, the phrase, the producer Danielle uh, wrote to me. She said, it will be great to have you back in the womb. And that phrase hit me like a brick of memories. And I realized, oh yeah, when I was in elementary school, my mom took me to an unlicensed hypnotherapist and had me regress to the womb. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I had this memory that I didn't know I had. I was kind of a weird kid. Um, I was uh, misdiagnosed as learning disabled and then retested and then diagnosed as gifted. Um, <laughs> so I had the wonderful school experience of getting beaten up for being an idiot <laughs> and then getting beaten up for being too smart. And I had a lot of rage in me. And sometimes I would act out. What I remember is I, I was in, in school, and the teacher came to me and said, Emmett, your mom is here to take you to your dentist appointment. 
I didn't remember having a dentist appointment that day. I got in the car and we drove a few towns over and she took me to this house where there was a woman. She had this amazing white hair and this thick Boston accent and she was dressed like a man. And for me as a young kid in Utah, this was definitely, dis I'd never seen a lady dressed this way. She had a sweater vest and a bow tie and a nice button-up shirt, which I guess I actually kind of dressed like that in high school. So subconsciously, I must have remembered what a great look that was. <laughs> and we went to her living room, and she had these aquariums, and she needed to clean those aquariums. I remember the smell of the fish poop and the scent. It was a unique, dim environment. I was there because, although I have never been outside of North America, um, as a fetus, I was a world traveler. <laughs> My father is a linguist, and he's been all over the world. And uh, one of those places was uh, the former Soviet Union, so Russia, Uzbekistan, Turkestan, uh, and he took his new bride uh, with him, and uh, I tagged along. <laughs> and a few things happened there that my mom felt affected me in the womb. And it was those incidents that made me the weirdo that I was. <laughs> so if I would travel back in time and in my memory, I could forgive her, and then everything would be okay. <laughs> I just want to point out that there are a lot of weird things about growing up Mormon, but hypnotism is not one of them. <laughs> that is not a usual thing that happens when you grow up. That was a bonus just for me. <laughs> And we talked, and this strange lady gave me advice. And then she said, Emmett, now it's time. And you may have an image, like a stereotype of what a creepy hack hypnotist would be like. And that image is correct. Um, she took out a metronome. She had me start counting. Ten nine, eight, you know, and we do exercises. I'm trying so hard to do this thing. And then she's like, Emmett, you're here. You're in the womb. And I was, I was in a place of comfort and warmth and, and it was watery. And I don't know if there was a heartbeat sound that was generated or that metronome turned into the sound of a heartbeat, but I, I heard it. I heard my mother's heartbeat. And it was, I finally felt safe as a kid. I did not feel safe very much. And then the strange lady says, and Emmett, now the earthquake is starting. <laughs> we 
because when my mother was in Moscow with me, she was there for the Moscow earthquake. And it was pretty traumatic for her, and by proxy, for me. And we went through that. We went through the fear and the mo movement, and it was not a safe place anymore. But then, the earthquake was over. And I was back, and I was safe. It was okay. My mother and I had survived the earthquake together. And I had this sweet moment. And that's when the strange lady started to lead me through the fever. Because my mom got really sick, and so did I. And it started getting hot. And I started to have a hard time breathing. And I was angry. She told me that I was angry at my mom for making me sick. But I should realize it's, it's, not, it's not her fault. And it was hot, and it was harder to breathe. And then I apologized to my mother, and then it stopped being so hot. And I could breathe again. And then we were back in that sea of comfort. But there was some confusion. And then she counted me out. And she said, now I'm it. Don't you feel better now? And I lied. And I said, yes. And then my mom took me to get ice cream. And that ice cream was great. And here's the thing. I am very lactose intolerant now. But I have this memory, the smell of the aquarium and the sound of the strange lady's voice and the taste of that ice cream. So vivid. And I have ice cream again because of this. I also, I dream of this sometimes. I dream that I am in my mother. And I don't know if that memory is true. And for me, it's like being in a loving Mars, a loving Martian landscape. Because there's still some red from the heat of the fever. But there's a peace and there's a confusion, but it's more of like the exploration of why am I here and what's going to happen. My mother, her memory is not so good anymore. And so when I asked her about this, she did not remember. So I am the only one who remembers this memory of a memory of a thing that could not happen. <laughs> And I've told this story, and a lot of people say, man, your parents were fucked up. <laughs> and yeah, they were, but this thing they did, this strange and terrible, weird thing they did to me, was not a crime. It was an act of love. And now I have, as a 37-year-old man, I have a place to sleep sometimes. And that's my mother's love. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Goldfrap behind me now. And we just heard from Emmett Montgomery. Definitely look him up at EmmettMontgomery.com. And if you're in Seattle, you got to check out Weird and Awesome, a show he does at the Annex. And don't forget the fantastic deal we have, guys, with one of our favorite sponsors. They've, uh, they've been with us since pretty much the beginning. AdamandEve.com. You get 10 free gifts now with any order. If you use the source code RISK, you get a sexy surprise for her, special selected toy for him, and a little something that both will enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult DVDs and free shipping on the whole order. And Adam and Eve, they just have such a huge selection of toys, condoms, lube, everything you can imagine. So even if you just select one item and then enter the offer code RISK at the checkout, you'll get 10 free gifts at adamandeve.com. Go get it. Now, our final story in this episode is one of those stories I was referring to earlier where it gets pretty intense and uh, emotional. Monica Welty really brought it. It was a beautiful thing, the way she shared this story. This was in Portland. We call this one The Healing Heart. Six years ago, my husband and I had our first child, a daughter. And in the hospital room after our unexpected C-section, um, he leaned over me and put his hand on my head, and she was put into my arms for the first time. And I looked at her, and I felt my heart expand. It was a physical sensation, but it was on the outside of my body, right in front of my chest. My heart had to grow to be able to encompass the endless, boundless love that I felt for this new baby. Three and a half years later, we were again in the hospital. My husband with his arm around me and me holding our newborn son, Harvey. Harvey was tethered to his little bed in the NICU by a variety of wires. There was uh, wires monitoring his brain activity that was barely there. Uh, tubes for the ventilator and the feeding tube and the heart monitor and the IV. And the doctors had used words like, the prognosis is grim, and he's had a severe insult to his brain. And I sat there staring up at this white, sterile wall at where the ceiling and the wall met and this gray shadow that was cast in that little corner. And I began to let what they were really saying in, which was grim meant dire and irreparable damage meant his brain was irreparably damaged. So I realized that my son was gonna die. And as I looked down at his sweet little face, with all of the tubes and the tape, I felt that space again. And I recognized it immediately, this physical sensation out here. But this time, 
instead of growing larger, it tore apart. And it felt like flesh. It was like I could feel the fibers of this space tearing apart. And what was left was this ragged, bloody hole. Harvey lived for 39 hours. And we packed up our things from the NICU and we went home to tell our daughter that baby brother wasn't coming home like we had promised. My husband and I had been together at that point for 12 years. I was 22 years old when we had gotten together. And so we built our lives together. We found our careers during our relationship. I was a massage therapist and he was a teacher. We were building a home. We were building a family. We expected that there would be ups and downs, but we didn't ever expect that something like this would happen to us. Who does? So we would lay in our bed at night shortly after Harvey died, and we would watch the movies of our trauma playing on our brains. We would hold on to each other, and when they released their grasp, we would cry, and we would hold each other, and we would talk, and we would connect. And we were having such a similar experience that I felt guilty thinking, wow, Harvey dying has brought us together. We're closer than we've ever been before. We're connecting on this brand new level after all of these years. Harvey died because my uterus ruptured, which basically never happens. The baby usually doesn't die in a rupture. Usually, the rupture heals correctly, but that did not happen to me. So six months after Harvey died, we were back at the hospital to get this rupture sewn up in my uterus. And this time, the doctors were inescapably hopeful that they were going to go in there and they were going to sew it up and we were going to have another baby. And there will never be another baby that replaces Harvey. We could have 17 more babies, and we would still, each of us, every single day of our lives, mourn and yearn for and feel the weight of the absence of our son. But there was hope there. There was a light at this fucking endless tunnel. If we could have another baby, we could feel that joy again we might be able to have some kind of semblance of the life that we had planned for ourselves feel normal again in some way. When I woke up after my surgery, my husband was at the side of my bed sobbing. And the only thing I could think, why else would he be crying? Had I lost my fertility? So my drug-induced haze, I said, did they take the uterus? And he looked at me with his red, swollen, tear-stained face. And in this relieved panic, he said, you're okay. You're going to be okay. You're okay. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So he told me later that the normally jovial, confident surgeon had come into the waiting room, ashen, and in shock himself telling my husband that I had come minutes from dying within the surgery, that the rupture was not where they thought it was, and that I began to bleed out, but that they were able to save me, and that was the good news. And the bad news was that 
I couldn't have any more children, that even a first trimester pregnancy would be fatal to both me and the child. It gets better. (laughs) So I'm in recovery for three days, and on the third day, I'm sitting there, I am, lying in the hospital bed, looking at that stupid space with the fucking shadow gray, in shock, like trying to figure out, like, how am I going to integrate this, right? How do I handle all of this loss? Like, the path that I was walking down just became a cliff. And I don't even see where my life fits in. How am I going to be a present mother to my living child? How am I going to be a supportive wife to my grieving husband? And then, bing, I get a text message from my husband. It's not intended for me yes (laughs) so it's intended for another woman who he's arranging to have sex with that afternoon and what do you say like in what circumstance is there anything you know so I'm like staring at the like what well that's shit timing So I start laughing, right? I mean, what kind of soap opera has, like, how, this is funny now. Like, this is getting funny. I mean, am I going to, like, get struck by lightning next? Like, what, what is, what is happening? What is happening? So it just was absurd. It was also at the bottom of my priority list, the cheating husband, So I got home the next day, and we um, had very heart-to-heart talks that turned out to be bullshit. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I can't... How the hell am I going to live without my husband, right? Like, I can hardly take care of myself and my child. We're six months out, right, from the loss of this baby, our baby. And also, my kids, they're the most important, our kids are the most important thing. This is about me and my husband and whatever the fuck is going on with him. And we can go to therapy and we can figure this out. I can't do this without him. I don't want to. I mean, 22 years old, right? It's my, my guy. So I wasn't 22 at that time, but when we got together. So we went to therapy and we're working on it. And we're doing all sorts of... Um, Things like he's texting me every 15 to 20 minutes when he's out. And I went to New York with my daughter and um, we Skyped all the time and talked and called and so that there was like not enough time for him to be sleeping with anybody. (laughs) Right, basically, right? And we agreed, like from now on, man, monogamy until we get on our feet and we get through this shit and we rebuild our relationship and then we'll talk about it. We can talk about it, but not right now. Like, let's get our shit together. So... (laughs) Um, so about six months after that so we're at 13 months after Harvey dies and he's out and I'm like you know I should check um, maybe we need a new texting plan because his texts keep going over for months now so I go to the computer and I'm like att.com blah 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 and I'm like wait a second who is he texting all the time so there was two phone numbers in the record, mine, whoop, and one other, his girlfriend's. So that was the end of that. So I came, he came home that night, and I was like, this is done. And God bless him. You know how they say that in the South? Like, 
God bless him. <laughs> like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> right? He denied the whole thing, right? Denied the whole thing. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And then as I persisted, well, we're just friends, right? So once again, I was awake all night long, laying now in my bed, looking at the stupid white wall and ceiling in the fucking corner, and then we never got around to painting. <laughs> what am I going to do? So I wake him up in the wee, because he can sleep, right? So I, I wake him up, right? In the, in the, uh, I wake him up in the early morning hours in like a full-blown panic attack, which I don't know. I've never had this before. It's good to have new experiences. So he does what you're supposed to do, which neither of us knows, but he puts his arms around me and he's talking to me and he's doing the confessions. Oh, I forgot to tell you. The bullshit that he was telling me earlier before therapy turned out to be a lie because he'd been cheating on me for the entirety of the relationship. Almost. We can give, we'll give him a year or two. Uh, so it wasn't a new thing. It wasn't Harvey, which he, it wasn't Harvey. So he's telling me his confessions and this happened with her and that happened with her and he loves me and da, 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 da. And right, not, I'm like, I don't, fishbowl, fishbowl. Everything starts to be just mumbles like Charlie Brown's teacher. And my daughter comes in and she is a higher pitched mumble. And I feel the weight of the bed lift as he gets up to tend to her and then lower as he comes back to lay down next to me. And I begin this mantra in my head, Monica, you're either going to the mental hospital or to work. Hospital or work, hospital or work, hospital or work, hospital or work. And then a voice that's not my voice says, get up and go to work. And I thought, yes, I can't. Of course, I'm financially dependent on him at this point. So I have to be able to support myself and my daughter. So I got up and I went to work and I did good work that day and then I collapsed on the floor of my spa into the arms of my best friend. My daughter had tethered me here. She gave me a reason to get up in the morning because she needed to have breakfast. She gave me a reason to go outside because she needed to play. She gave me something outside of my body to love and care for and be the reason to live. But now I was broken. I, I couldn't see in front of me any kind of manageable situation. So my mind started letting me go. She can just go with my husband and his girlfriend and they can just start over without me. If you die, she'll be less damaged than having this mother who is this broken shell. And I was still in shock, so there was a rationality that remains, if any of you have been there, for a few days while you're in shock. So I told my friends I needed to be on a suicide watch. I talked to my dad and said, you need to find me at least an outpatient mental hospital because I'm not going to get through this. So the next day, like a robot, I, don't, I got up again, once again, thanks to um, shock, and I went to work. And that day, we had a new um, woman who was coming to work for us at the spa, and she was a shaman. And she was having that day a ceremony before she started working there to bless the space. 
So we got there. The three of us who worked there, we all sat down, and there was an altar, and it had crystals and feathers and gems and rattles and drums. And we all sat there while another shaman and her partner walked throughout the whole space, wafting sage and drumming, ba-bum, 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 like horses' hooves. And that constant drumming sort of took the shaman out of our world and into whatever is over there so that they could remove the energies and get the spirits and the beings out of the space that were hindering our business and then talk to the space and ask the space what it needed to heal. So at this point, I think it's a bunch of hoo-ha, right? Like, my life is like in shards at my feet, right? And we're drumming and rattling. So I had been saying for months that my body didn't feel like my body anymore. I was overweight, and I was, but I was swollen also, and I had a hard time getting up and down, and I was a fitness instructor before this. Um, and I didn't have, uh, I didn't recognize my thoughts or my feelings. They were all hateful and jealous and angry and desperate, and I was unrecognizable to myself. So I sat there, with the drumming and the rattling. And I moved my hips a little bit. And all of a sudden, I recognized them, that those were my hips. And so I moved my back, and I stretched my arms, and I felt my back and my arms move. And it was like a funnel from the heavens into my head, like pouring myself back into myself. I have never... I wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to me. And I started exclaiming to near strangers, I feel like myself again. I feel like myself again. And they called me into the hallway for the individual healing portion of this amazing ceremony. And I stood there and I just surrendered and I closed my eyes and I opened my palms and I heard the ba-bum, 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 ba-bum right behind my head and the sage wafting up and down my body and then I felt that space for the third time in my life. And as I stood there, that space started coming back together and it stitched itself back together like scar tissue, like dark, dense, strong scar tissue. Our bodies make scar tissue because that's a vulnerable area, and it overdoes it. And right here in this not physical and yet physical space, I felt my heart close up again. I felt my daughter in there. She'd always been in there. But now I felt my son in there, too. And this is the only place where I can hold them forever, no matter what. I went home. I told my husband it was time for him to move out. And I worked like hell. I worked like hell to get back on my feet and get my business going. I worked like hell with my grief and through my grief. I worked like hell to try to find again some kind of joy, maybe, passion, gratitude. I worked like hell to become the mother that I wanted to be to my only living child, to be the role model and the woman that she could watch 
and grow up with. And so ever since then, I've promised myself that I'm going to walk through this life with that heart on the outside of my body that is mangled and scarred and bruised and beautiful and open and full and here. Thank you. is all for this week's episode folks this is calexico and iron and wine behind me now covering dylan's dark eyes and now i am going to go to risk-show.com slash tour to read to you what we've got coming up we are in toronto on october 9th come out and see us toronto on October 14th, we're in Denver. Uh, we have our usual shows on October 22nd in New York and Los Angeles. And then on November 6th, we're in Atlanta. We're still taking pitches for that. The theme is nasty. Then on uh, November 14th, we're in Milwaukee. Still taking pitches for that. The theme is fuck this. Cleveland is November 21st. The theme is so emotional. Salt Lake City is December 12th, and the theme that night is Twisted. Folks, if you would like to pitch us for any of those shows, email me directly at kevin at risk-show.com and be sure to check that tour page, uh, risk-show.com slash tour to find out when we're coming and get your tickets. Don't forget to visit our school if you're interested in any sort of storytelling training, whether it's in person, over Skype, or one of our video courses that you can take in your own time at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Speed.